Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. My very first novel, Insatiable, a story for greedy girls, is coming out on the 11th of February 2021. Insatiable is available online and from bookshops, and there's a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for your book listeners to pre-order. Huge thanks to everyone who has pre-ordered already. It's the very best way for you to support the podcast. Now, today's guest has many names. C.G. Major, Rosie Blake and Ruby Hummingbird among them. She's the author of a huge number of books, including this year's number one smash hit, The Other Girl. Set in the 1940s, it's the story of Edith, who's been trapped in a New Zealand lunatic asylum since she was five. It's about what happens when people start to pay attention to what might have occurred before her arrival. She's also my darling pal Cheska, a friend who I met through the Jilly Cooper book club. We talked about Jilly, obviously, the book that Cheska loves so much that she ordered a copy for me midway through our recording, and the thrill of a truly scary book. Can you read at the, when you've got a book on? I know you've always got a book on. No, not really. I mean, this is the problem. So I was actually looking at these. So last, so two pre-twins, I remember reading about 60 books a year, which, you know, that's a fair whack. That for sounds like a lot. A kid who you know um and they just pile up now and they just pile up and they pile up and I realize how little and I think that's actually massively been my problem that you also need to read because you need to know you know what's selling what's going on where the kind of you know where the zeitgeist is going and I've got things here that I've now like I must read that I must read that to help either to to look at the tone of it or yeah, I'm just doing a lot of that at the moment where I'm like, I don't want to write the same thing, but I also am aware that I've missed a couple of big books this year that I'm writing like, so I need to read them to check that they haven't literally written the book. So The Sight of You, it's I'm, I'm reading that now um, just because I'm nervous about it. Oh, who's that guy? Um, Holly Miller. It's about a couple who he can see the future, so I think he sees the end. So I think he sees his death or something, or he sees the end of the relationship and it's whether they go into the relationship in the first place. So it's similar to what I'm writing at the moment. So I'm like, right, I need to check that, you know, that it hasn't already been done as it were, which is always horrible. 
Um, cause yeah, cause I'm working on a book I had an idea for 20 months ago that I wanted to write the moment I had the idea for it. And I've just literally been under deadline for everything else. And I'm like, Oh God, the pain. We all have our best ideas when we're constricted and those are the things that yeah. kind of surge and bubble up. I agree. It was a real shock. It was a real shock when it happened. And then I was like, fuck, I can't write it. <laughs> I haven't got time to write it. Anyway. Has um, any books really surprised you this year? Is there anything you've picked up and not knowing what to expect and then being blown away? Yeah, probably three hours. I think that, and no, the one that really got me that I did not expect was My Dark Vanessa, which, oh. did, have you read it? Yes. The first half of it, I was like, this is incredible. And really uncomfortable and it was quite a sort of you know, one of those books you sort of you felt quite voyeuristic reading it um because it was so obviously inspired by something that you know a, a grain of truth in her own more than a grain as as it transpires um but it then segued didn't it into the second half it turned into something a bit different and I suppose I don't foist it on people as a recommended read now but I did think it was I mean I was just so invested in it in a way that I hadn't been for a while so yeah, that one really got me. And three hours got me. That really just had me engrossed. I did really love in My Dark Vanessa the sort of the mirroring of Lolita and the way, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with a friend before about the way that I was affected by Lolita when I read it as a teenager. And I think yeah. that when, certainly when I was a teenage girl, I didn't have the objectivity or understanding of the world to see any sort of monstrousness in yeah. Humbert I just felt you know oh this is how men want me to be to some degree or another and what's so fascinating in my dark Vanessa is the way that it kind of it tunnels into what grooming is and how it works and what we think of yeah. as that sort of exploitation and how much of it appeals to this really creepy nuanced understanding of a person's vulnerability I think that for some readers it would it sounds awful but like some people would have just missed the point because mm. I think you know so I remember you know some being like oh this is you know really creepy she, she's to blame so that was that was the fascinating thing about it well they said she's to blame being, being confused that it's like a love story that she sort of led led on this is like Facebook book club groups oh. <laughs> so yeah I'm saying with a pinch of salt who last night I got a review about the other girl that was talking about my um this is a part non-fiction book <laughs> Oh, is it? <laughs> um, because they were like, because of kids with past lives. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is to you. Uh, <laughs> it was so weird. But yeah, I found the same with my dark Vanessa that people were a bit sort of, their reaction to it was quite interesting. Because I think there was a lot of judgment. And I was like, oh, that was probably why it did so well. Because it was a book club read. I don't know. It was just, yeah, that one surprised me. And then I don't know what I keep turning around. So, yeah, tell like, me about Three Hours, because I don't know that book. So that's Roseman Lupton. It was basically three hours of a school um, under siege by uh, basically a small group of people that took them hostage. And it was it was just brilliant because it was it, it was following um, the, one of the characters. Sorry, you will find this, by the way, for the next hour. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I read this really good book. And now I can remember nothing about it, apart from it's good, um, which I'm sure a lot of people do. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was emotional backstory of sort of the protagonist. So you were really invested in him. And it was just tense. It was just, you know, you, you rarely 
read a thrill I mean you read lots of gripping things but this one I really felt quite stressed reading it you know it was sort of you really did feel immediately that tension um the stakes were obviously ridiculously high um so it was sort of a book that felt like a movie um but with more of that wonderful emotional depth to it that a book can give you that perhaps perhaps you know a movie can't deliver really and yeah it was good and it was clever and the plot was it got a bit bonkers at the end but it was the first I just remember the first half I just could not stop reading and wanted to read it in the evening instead of watch television which is always a good sign that is I mean that should be the cover quote yeah. have you read did you read The yeah. Spark of Light by J.G. Pico is that her school shooting one it is um it's a a clinic I think and it's people okay. having abortions. And it, that sort of reminded me because it's got that tension. And I know that I think there are flashbacks. Oh, I might read. I do love her. Have you read the book of Two Ways, which is obviously only just out? Not yet. It's so cleverly constructed. It's very heavy on the Egyptology, <laughs> like to the point where you're like, it's it, which is really annoying actually because the characters are good, the story's good, the plotting is beautiful, and it, she just can't help get really into (laughs) where you're like do we need to debate this Egyptology sort of she goes into the nuance of debate because it's between two academics debating something to do with Egyptology and it's quite dense and you're like oh that's a shame because it's such a good it's a great read and the twist at the end it's like layer on layer of you think you know what's going on I didn't know what was going on right up till the last 10 pages you're still like how is she going to play? How is this playing out? It's clever. Because whenever yeah. that does happen, I always suspect that, as you know, because I hate doing research, I just want to kind of yeah. get on. I'm just, I'm like the the kid at school who's like, I don't want the colouring book. <laughs> I want crayons on the desk. <laughs> but when someone's got masses of sort of detail that feels a little extraneous, um, that they just can't bear to waste. Like, the, I spent six months of my life researching this. It's got to go in somewhere. I think that's it. That you, she, Her son is a Yale professor, so she had this wonderful um, time researching it with him. And it, that really comes across. And you need lots of it. Like, you need it to give it, it lend it its colour. The whole point of the title is The Book of Two Ways, which is all about um, the tombs that mummies are put in. And there's um, a map, basically, to get them sort of out into the afterlife and they follow it. And it's, so it's really clever. And the book, the structure of the book follows that. So it's, it follows, it goes and splits into like the alter, alternate life of this character. Um, but yeah, you just, for some readers, I think it will just be too much deep you know depth and detail so you slightly yeah you hope she won't lose people because of it because it's such a brilliant read otherwise I was just thinking I don't know if you read I read it as Stone Mothers by Erin Kelly but I remember thinking that that I was really really impressed by how thorough her research was when it came to kind of Victoria is it Victorian asylums and that whole world yeah exactly it felt necessary and never gratuitous and it wasn't I mean given the subject matter light isn't quite the word but I felt that she was really skillful at using the detail in a way that only ever served the story. Yeah, no, well, I think, I mean, I read the same book because actually I interviewed her at Henley, at at Henley Festival about it. And that was it. And again, that was cleverly constructed. And and it all led to that final third of the book, didn't it? Where you really saw what, what sort of went on there. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I obviously, you know, all my books have a lot of research, but you try, there's no doubt in my first book, almost all my edits were 
everyone just trying to remove all my historical research and be like, Cheska, you don't need, you know, two pages about what they're eating in Paris. And actually, you know, there's still there's still bits in there that I'm sure, you know, if I was now going to re-edit it, I'd be like, Cheska, for goodness sake, you know, no one needs to know that they stewed cats from Parisian balconies in World War Two. Um, but they sort of but then also that sort of lends it the color I don't know, <laughs> you know it's sort of you need a bit of it but I definitely put a lot of it in um and now I don't research I research a tiny bit at the beginning and then probably like you I crack on and I often just leave asterisks and I'm like check it check it check it with someone check it with someone. ask you know I always have ask Daisy or ask Charlie or ask you know because <laughs> you just you know or find out and I think you know you go on Twitter and go does anyone know anything about sniffer dogs? And you always get some amazing person, you know, with this incredible expertise who comes along and says, yes, let me give you an entire tutorial, you know, on DM. <laughs> it's I amazing. I love that. I saw on your Instagram today about any time things like, you know, height and hair colour and eye colour are referenced, like leave yeah. an asterisk or make a list because people, all sorts of things can change from page to page. Oh, honestly, you think you're going to remember, don't you? You really do. You really think at the time that all these tiny details. So mostly, I'd, and also age, I don't know about you, but, you know, you you choose an age for a child and you also forget your book moves on. So yes. you then, of course, don't age that child. Um, and I did that for one of my Rosie Blake books where they just stayed four, I think, for the whole book. <laughs> it was over like two years. And this like four year old was just stuck forever as four. Um, but yeah, so now I do an asterisk and I tend to get to the end of the first draft. I asterisk everything that I need to check or that I just know is a fact. And it just saves so much time. And I normally have about 300, which is probably what one, yeah, one every page of a book. I have 300 asterisks, maybe 400 of just stuff that I'm like, right, you've made, you've given her brown hair or auburn hair. So make sure that you, you know, you haven't switched it to blonde. Thinking about the books you've read, you know, in your life when you were younger and now and sort of what means the most to you. What are the books you think about or maybe even reread and you feel that you need that character to stay exactly at the point that they are. I mean, I'm just um, rereading Rivals at the moment for a cosy Christmas read and just thinking about um, super producer Cameron Cook, who has obviously been a sort of 20, weird like 26, but also maybe going on 46 and her sort of bullsiness. But I guess that book came out nearly 40 years ago, which means that she'd be in her mid-60s and... That's what, so funny, that yeah. Like? I mean, that's it. it, it I think it always surprises you because sometimes you, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel when I read that I'm making, even though the character, like you just said, Cameron is 26. In my mind, when I, because I reread Rivals on the first lockdown, because I reread all the Rochester Chronicles, of course I did. And in my mind, I think she was my age. I suppose sometimes you sort of age them where you're at because it mm. would then seem so bonkers to me that she was sort of you know more than 12 whatever it is years younger than me and that just seems really odd to me it's kind of like when you watch footballers on tv and they I feel like they're all older than me and I'm like no I'm really old compared to these footballers so I could probably mother a lot of these footballers but anyone on telly just seems like older or like an adult <laughs> and you're such a child but you know I don't really I yeah it's funny I don't I always they freeze for me they freeze in books you just meet them in that little flash of time and I also don't tend to think of even my own characters as aging or I, I do think I just enjoy yeah just meeting them at that moment but now you say it I'm now fascinated as to how she'd turn out and that's the beauty of writing a sequel which you know I've never done any series but you know that must be fun to go and revisit you know Rupert Campbell Black you know 10 20 30 40 years after which is exactly what you know Jilly's going to do isn't she with her football book because he's now going to be you know at the end of a career 
um, in the football world. And you just think that's the joy of returning to that series is that thrill of of looking at how these characters change. But equally, they can also disappoint, which is terrifying. But Jilly Cooper books, that is how we met. We are both members of the JCBC. Um, Tell me. I was laughing because I have an entire Jilly bookshelf. Literally, it is just rammed full of them. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about when and where you met Jilly in book form for the first time. I know we have met her. Um, so definitely uh, my mum, who is definitely completely inappropriately would have given them to me. I think I was 12, maybe um, young. I remember being young because I remember not really understanding much of um, any sort of there was lots of there was a, wasn't there a scene in a helicopter um, with Chelsea. Helen with a bit of bit of fingering and I remember being like oh what's that sounds fun and because um, you're like you yeah, know bushes remember... are mentioned that have they landed are they in the woods now with the bush no they definitely landed didn't they they landed in some cops mm. um but yeah so I remember I remember that scene quite vividly so that obviously really struck a chord with the young me but yeah so I read them in my teen years and actually I genuinely would say that she was someone who I was the first books I'd ever read that had for me, this sort of glamorous, amazing, real life world, sort of a lot of the time I've probably been reading magical things or kind of crazy horror. I remember reading all the point horror books, like really kind of unreal things. And I think Jilly Cooper for me, I was reading about adults. And even though it was sort of a glamorous, extreme world, it felt like these were people that existed and that were real. And I think that was a massive moment of my reading where these people just completely came to life and it was so exciting and I still I very love them I just reread them I read the whole lot because they're such a comfort they are they are so brilliant they are so wonderfully layered they are so funny they're so oh I just love them (laughs) I'd never thought about that but that was why I love them so much because you know so much of what you're given to read as a child it's in a magical fantasy world and you know fair Mm. enough I like the borrowers or I'm trying to think of another example. Um, no, I, I have the faraway tree. Like, yes. And, you know, all of the, and even Roald Dahl, all of them, you know, just, it's all fantastical. And I loved them, but yeah, there was something about being introduced to the real world. I didn't via know, Jilly. I, I just wanted to read, you know, people like going to bars and having sex. And that was much more thrilling than, you know, a man who's shaped like a saucepan. <laughs> Oh, I'm just re- I'm reading the faraway tree at the moment to my boy, my four-year-old. It's so wonderful, just returning to them. Anyway, <laughs> he's quite scared of quite a lot of it. it is- he asked for a rug. He asked for a rug in his bedroom last night. He said, "Oh, can I have a rug in my bedroom?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And he said, "But not one that flies." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "All right, I'll get you one that doesn't fly, babe." See what I can do. <laughs> Because see what I can see what I can rustle up for you from Ikea. <laughs> do you know, maybe that's all of those magical books are quite threatening, like Roald Dahl especially, but even I remember the last faraway tree book when, you know, the you think it's all coming to an end and something is happening to the mm. roots or someone's attacking it and just being like distressed yeah. like all day, like Horrible. genuinely yeah. frightened, having no real understanding of the fact mm. that it was a book and it wasn't part of my life. <laughs> oh, well, absolutely. It was just the idea that that tree would die was just so awful. Yeah, absolutely. I do. No, I mean, they were, I mean, they probably my favourite children's I, books, The Faraway Tree, I think. You've taught girls in boarding schools. Have you, were you a house I mother? Have. 
I was. I was a housemistress. I was for did you three, take four years. Any inspiration or professional advice from Enid Blyton and Mallory Towers and Sinclair's? <laughs> Strangely, I did not. <laughs> But um, no, I mean, they are crazy worlds. And I think it is really interesting when you actually look at some of the success of books. I mean, you look at Harry Potter, which is a wizarding book, but actually a lot of the success of that book is because I think it's based in a boarding school. There is something so compelling about books that are based there. Either people have gone there, so they recognise them and they want to go and return to the madness of it, or they have never been to one and they're fascinated by, you know, the crazy strange reality that is living in a community like that i mean they are crazy places i love them i do i they're very flawed and there's lots of things wrong with boarding but when they get it right it's just the best thing to be part of a community of teenagers who i mean i just loved it i just absolutely loved it one of my favorite books problematic fave is um daddy long legs but i haven't read it and I just remember, I think I would have been about seven or eight when I read it. And again, it's that Mallory Towers, like, oh, you always go to chapel on Wednesday evening and you have to wear this dress and <laughs> yeah. these shoes. And I loved yeah. that and I craved that. I think that's it, that they are. I mean, uh, so I I wish you could help me. I read an entire series set in, Amer- in an American boarding school when I was younger, which I'm still hankering after, which I cannot for the life of me remember any titles. Of. And I still just, it was just, but it's, I was totally invested. I bought every single one. Um, and I just remember she had a muff and she went ice skating on the lake at the school. Um, that's all I really remember about it. But they were just so wonderful. And I do. It was just that. Yeah, the, the magical, the, tr- the trunk at the start of term, the mm, tuck box. Tuck. The idea that you've basically been living with all your friends, um, you know, the nasty master, the, you know, just the crushes, the older girls being scary, you know, all of that. It's just, there's so much character. I mean, you can see why they are just rich for the books, you know, I'm the setting. and the- buy myself oh. a tuck box for Christmas. Um, and I want to ask you about Christmas books, but, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but every time muffs come up, I have to um, remember this because it makes me laugh so much. Um, I believe we were studying Portrait of a Lady at university. And I think Isabel Archer at some point puts her hands in her muff and we were all you know snickering going ha 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 you know apart from this one boy who was just like what are you talking about because he had no idea that a muff was like a winter warming he was just like she's fingering herself in the middle of the drawing room blimey oh that's wonderful (laughs) anyway tell me about books you love to read at christmas and books that make you feel festive I, i don't tend to save anything for christmas um, but I do ask recommendations. So last year, I think I read um, Kirsty Greenwood had a, um, a a short story, sort of what do you call it, a novella, oh, honestly, words. Um, and I read that and that was gorgeous. And I think anything, you know, you've got to have a bit of snow in there. You've got to have the sort of stereotypical scene. Um, but otherwise, no, it's more the comfort. I do sort of start to bunk down now with quite comforting things. So I've just finished Jenny Cooper's nonfiction between the covers and um, Mam Darling, which I was really late to, but loved. Oh, my and in fact, loads of loads of good nonfiction. Favourites. You know, just... And between the covers, honestly, I was a little bit nervous because I've got some older pieces of Jilly's nonfiction. And, you know, because she is writing about such a specific time and her voice and yeah. her jokes are so you know period detailed and I love them but I'm nervous about new audiences finding them in this sort of you know 2020 world but yes I was enchanted I loved it I thought between the covers was just perfect so yeah I really did 
it was it was just joy wasn't it it was just you see exactly why she is such a success because her voice and and the, the, the sort of everyday nature of her problems and her you know just the things she's moaning about or you know being funny about bitchy about are, are just exactly the kind of problems that you know we we can recognize now in 2020 they did do a great choice i think on the on the selection of stuff um yeah that they, they were great and i think that's it that i do i'm returning a lot to sort of lovely you know memoir and non-fiction and i'm lady glenn kona is that how you pronounce her name you know her bonkers book yes. about being some I, I think obviously i've been watching the crown as well so i'm sort of a bit royal obsessed at the moment but i loved that and again it was just her it was her warmth it was just wonderful to read it and so I've been so I think I particularly when I write myself when I write fiction I do find myself going a lot to non-fiction now and obviously you know that's you know I read Sisterhood probably only a year ago now and that you know that was joy as well that was just exactly what I needed at the time and I'm one of three girls as well so it was just so familiar slightly uncomfortable <laughs> for me to read and think about my own place in my pecking order because I, um, I do yeah. love sisters in books because it's a world I know but also because I think that has always been a way that writers especially older writers you can explore women and their relationships in a way that's allowed you know that normally yeah and, and also that they're so honest they're so horribly mm. honest that you can be so, you're so infantile with your sisters you know you're so I'm so different you are just you you have that awful side of you as well um which is sort of wonderful and and brilliant and it's very honest but it's you know my sisters you know have seen the absolute worst moments in my life definitely and I've seen theirs definitely no doubt about it because yeah, <laughs> so I love just, ob yeah. obviously you know there are little women and ballet shoes and pride and prejudice you know and um sensibility yeah. comes up at all you know classics but I think a yeah. lot about the the relationship with the uh, Marion Keys Walsh girls. Yes. Oh, yes, she does. And oh, she yeah. does family as well. In fact, I read Grown Ups this year and that was a real highlight. That was I went straight out and got it in hardback and knew that I would just have a joyful week with Marion Keys's company. And she's just great. She just delivers, you know, those crazy big families with all the the rivalries and the you know the resentments and the and just the comedy of it and to get that skill mm. of handling the dark so lightly and so believably and the awfulness of the brothers do you but lend all your favorite books to um because that's what i find is you, you know people come along to look at my shelves and actually all most of my books are with with other people because i've already foisted them on on them and that definitely Marin keys has already disappeared from my house so you know my, my friend charlie bless him has a little book and i always take the mickey out of him for his little book he keeps all the wet who he's lent his dvds and his books to and actually i keep meaning now to get myself a little book mostly so i just stop looking for them because you're right it's that sort of frustration of i know i've got a copy of and i've got endless copies of the literary guernsey and potato peel pie society that i just have on a running i now just buy them wherever i see them because i constantly give them to people that's something um, <laughs> this um I have been longing to read and I've never read so if you have a spare but tell me about it <gasps> the literary guns you haven't read it no. oh god see I'm so jealous of you of people that haven't found it yet I just it's one of those magical books do not watch the movie or if you do just do not think of it as the same thing because the it's just her the voice of the character so it's it's all written in letters um and it's just the comedy she's just joy she and you know the story of the author that she she wrote it as she was a member of a book club and was obviously very amusing and had good anecdotes and her book club basically said right you should write a book 
And so the Literary Guernsey Potato Peel Pie Society was born. And it's essentially about a fictional book club that they panicked and set up on a Nazi occupied Guernsey when they were basically walking home from hanging out with each other, slightly like lockdown. They're based on lockdown. They panicked and they made up that they were part of this literary society. And it's this bunch of total misfits, people from total different spectrum. Um, and the book's written all through letters um, to this author who then post-war goes and visits Guernsey and falls in love with the island, but also with this community of people. And there's a mystery at the heart of it. Um, and it's just, it's just one of those books that you just can't believe, you know, you wish, and she, she died, sadly, the author died. Her, her, she knew it was going to be a success. She knew it was going to be sold in various countries. Um, and her daughter, um, Annie Barrows, is it? She finished the book or did the editing and has also then gone on to publish her own stuff. But yeah, it's, it's probably, it is probably my favourite book. Oh my gosh, so she must have died quite recently. Yeah, so she, I, as I say, I think she definitely didn't quite finish the process. I'm not sure she ever saw it in a bookshop. Um, she certainly didn't know about the movie. Um, yeah, awful and sort of, you know, wonderful of her daughter to have that legacy mm. and obviously to have worked alongside each other. So that's a sort of sad story even in itself. Um, but it's just... Yeah, you just, it's just special. It's just really special and it's its bonkers and it shouldn't, you know, the, the structure shouldn't work, but it completely does. And, you know, you've got letters that are like that long and then, you know, they're huge or they're tiny or they're one sentence, but it's just immediately in the voice of that person and the characters are just fantastic. And I was sad, you know, when you, you, know, when you finish a book and you just wish you could meet them, you're, yes. you're grieving, you're literally grieving for the fact that they're not real. And I sometimes have that with the Ginny Cooper characters. You just cannot imagine a world where Dame Hermione just doesn't exist. You know, it's just, she does. You know, she, she is, it's really strange. Um, but yeah, I do. So I grieve for the loss of them. And I never cast, you know, never cast characters in books, probably for that reason that they're really real to me as sort of these 3D people. Um, so I find that strange to be able to sort of attach uh, an actor to them. Do you um, cast it, them in your own books when you're writing? No, I really can't. I just, I really can't. And even when I've borrowed, I'm sure you do this as well, where you borrow people's hobbies or lives or physical traits. So I often borrow Ben, my husband. Um, but the character, even though I come, sometimes I really get really quite close and I steal sort of, you know, hobbies or specific things he's said sometimes. And yet it's not Ben, it's Greg, you know, Greg the vet. <laughs> I, made, I wrote about a vet. I wrote about a vet who loves sci-fi novels, um, who plays hockey, which is basically my husband. But it's still Greg in my mind. I don't picture Ben, I picture Greg. It's very odd. I can't I explain it really. so interesting, <laughs> isn't it? It's like having, you have certain sort of like posts on a map or a marker, but there are infinite different ways of getting from post to post. And it's just helpful to have the post. Yes. And I do think it fleshes out. You do need, the reason I take things from real people, I think is because you immediately then have something to work with, or, mm. you know, you immediately have a 3D character where you have, okay, he's a vet, but okay. So what does he do in his free time? Oh, well, he's a bit geeky and he does woodwork and, you know, and basically, um, and you can change it, but at least you've got a character formed and you're thinking about all the facets of their life, not just their job, basically, or what they look like. On the school German exchange, I was paired up with another girl who had a cat and played the flute and there was something else as well. And <laughs> See? Oh, it was a it was a dull old week. But immediately that immediately makes her instantly more interesting, doesn't it? When the moment you said flute, you know, you just go, oh, okay, I get it. You know, you sort of already start to form your own 
idea and it doesn't take much like you say you sort of hang everything kind of grows from there but yeah they're never they're never actually real people to me in the real world jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it blue nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll be back to Jessica soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've picked Any Human Heart by William Boyd. This book has been mentioned on the podcast a few times before, but I think it's the perfect immersive winter read. If you're looking for a story that will completely captivate you over the Christmas break, this is the one. It's the invented diary of Logan Mount Stewart, presented as a sort of authentic post-death literary journal, a device that allows our narrator to be thrillingly and authentically unreliable. As the name would suggest, it's about being human in the 20th century. Dazzling highs, devastating lows, and a character at the centre who is venal, vulnerable, sometimes hard to like, and yet ultimately easy to love. Any Human Heart is published by Hamish Hamilton and out now. Now, back to Tesco. Are there any books that you've sort of pressed into people's hands and said, this is amazing, you'll love it, I loved it so much, and then they've not loved as much as you hoped they would? Oh, I did that awful thing, I think it was two Christmases ago, where everyone was talking, was it two or three Christmases ago, with my father-in-law, and I gave him, bless him, I gave him Wolf Hall, which I hadn't read, but obviously everyone, you know, it was one of those things, I was like, I'm definitely going to read Wolf Hall, of course I'm going to read Wolf Hall, everyone I know is talking about Wolf Hall, I'm going to buy my father-in-law Wolf Hall. And the poor man reads everything that people give him because he's very polite. And it was just probably not his cup of tea. I think everyone's called he in it. I think the the, the names confused him. <laughs> but he soldiered on for the whole book because I think he thought that I would end up, you know, chatting to him about <laughs> this great tomb that he'd just soldiered through that I had read. And of course, I hadn't read it. So I felt so guilty because, uh, you know, I just basically foisted about 700 pages on him something I hadn't even bothered to read myself so I normally never give anyone a book that I haven't read myself I don't know what I was thinking to be honest um but anyway uh, so I did that which was horrendous so that was my lesson for future Christmases and birthdays to never give presents yeah the books I haven't read um but yes of course um it's always grim in fact I was just as you said you hadn't read the you know Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society there's a tiny part of me that is of course frightened that you immediately say, well, this, I absolutely love it. And this is absolutely my favourite book. And of course, you know, you, someone totally underwhelmed by it and it just hasn't 
touch them in the same way and you just it's devastating particularly when you like that person <laughs> you've got terrible taste um but you haven't you know and I think you realize that it, what is it I don't know the magic of books that for some reason I also think the mood you're in yes I don't need to reread the whole of Julie Cooper again but I really couldn't face a new story in lockdown I had no you know no childcare. I was writing on a deadline um, and my husband was out doing his job because he's a key worker and it, I just couldn't face anything and I needed the comfort of a world I knew I needed to revisit those characters and so I do think you know a lot of it is is where what mood you're in and and that certain book can just come along at that moment and just offer exactly what you needed as it were at the time um, yeah so sometimes yeah you and I that's why I do put down things I start them um, and then I save them for when I'm really excited about them. <clears throat> Insatiable uh, by Daisy Buchanan. Because it's actually a mistake to just read because you feel pressure, even though your friend is waiting for you to read and actually tell you what they top, think. Top. Come on. For me, it, it, it just ruins it because I actually am not reading a lot at the moment. I, I, I just, I, I care too much. I really want to read and enjoy it and love it. And it's just silly if I'm stressed about something else or I'm just... Like, no, I know I'm going to enjoy this. So just don't, don't read it now while you've got 18 other books that you're, par- you know, you're panicking about because you need to read them first. I, mean, I absolutely agree. And that's the th- to find the kind of the headspace and the emotional space and the appetite for new, like this year. All I've wanted yeah. to do was just crawl back into like comfy. Co- it's a bit like, you know, getting dressed and, you know, putting on the sort of Yeah, exciting... it's not been a good year to release three books, Daisy. Not been a good year. Don't recommend it. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> I'm hoping for a vaccine because my next one's out in April next year. And I'm like, please don't say that I'm going to have four books out in a pandemic. Because <laughs> it just just be too depressing. But what no. can you tell us about your next book? Um, well, that one is not an uplifting read at all. Um, it's um, very dark. It's about a creepy bridge in Scotland, which is a true place where dogs leap to their deaths. Um, and it's essentially a cursed place called, it's called The Thin Place, the book. And I just got fascinated by the idea of why somewhere has that atmosphere or has that menace um, and fictionalise a story around it. Because I am fascinated when you walk into places or bridges or houses or anywhere where you can feel the air shift and you can feel sort of that uncomfortable, you know, you don't like it, basically. You don't like the feeling. Um, And I've explored that. And it's, um, it's, yeah, it's about a woman who essentially wakes up this house and this bridge so that's got its secrets and the house and the bridge don't much like it or her um so yeah it's it's quite a menacing read I'm really I need to work on my lift pitch <laughs> well I, I'm sold I need to read this when you are working on it and writing a story with that much darkness and that real like pitch of your stomach fear I mean mm. how do you live with that in your job are you able to switch off from it can you you know get up and think right I've been scared for my life, but now it's it's six o'clock and I've got things to do. Yeah, it is strange. It, I don't know why, because I, I, a lot of my books are really dark and I don't know why I want to explore such dark themes. And sometimes I'm really shocked by um, a scene I've written, which is so horrible. There's, there must be something in me that obviously finds that writing is my safe space to, to maybe explore my sort of worst fears, my darkest fears there's one particular chapter of this book that I really won't want to reread myself which is odd because it's come from my own brain 
Um, and that's that weird moment where writing, you know, takes over in a way. Um, and you really are just writing what the characters need to do. Um, but yeah, I can switch off. I don't tend to read dark things when I'm writing dark things because it is too much. Because the worst thing about what I write is, of course, that I end up researching real things. And this one, I mean, it's horrible, of course, um, because um, dogs do jump from it. But it, at least, you know, there, there wasn't too much to research that was that was sort of any deeper than than those those deaths. Whereas sometimes I've had to, you know, really look at, at horrible tragedies and you do get you do get down because you get sad that someone actually lived through it. But also you worry then that you're not going to do justice to um that tragedy and and that actually that you really want your readers to understand that this could happen to anyone and how we react to things is you're just lucky if you haven't lived through something really horrible basically is what I'm often trying to explore mm. in my books I think is um you know it's very easy to judge when you haven't lived through you know a world war or a terrible tragedy you don't know how you'll react you just hope that you'll react in a nice way I think but essentially you're really tested and sometimes I always wonder whether I haven't I haven't yet been tested and how I would respond in those moments as a reader what's the most <laughs> frightening book that you've ever encountered I think now I mean it sounds so sort of silly to say it that you know you have a child and I now can't read missing children um I find that really really upsetting now um I suppose because I've become a mother myself and you can't help but think about your own you know what you would feel in that moment so I suppose frightening in that respect I really wouldn't touch a book now I, I yeah I sort of almost had to have a trigger warning uh, I, mean, I don't know about you I I grew up loving being scared on the point horror books which were very pantomime but I mean they were really I remember enjoying you know really being frightened by you know the babysitter and the I can't remember what are the other titles there's some brilliant titles Ooh, just the, the, the lifeguard the, the, I know, remember yeah, the that, lifeguard. It was exactly. that point romance. Um, but you know, they were scary. You know, they were at the time. You know, I've, again, I was for preteen probably. They were really scared me. They really did frighten me. And, did, and that did, was the first time that books had scared me. Did you have goosebumps um, as a gateway drug, or did you go straight in with the point horror? I went straight in with the point horror. Yeah, I think I went far away tree point horror, which is just not right, is it? Well, I was just thinking <laughs> I about had a gap. this the other day that read it and again I had a real like preteen serial killer phase and now I just can't you know no murders ever I, I don't want to be near any any death in a book if I can possibly help it yeah well I think that's it isn't it you do and I certainly this year has been interesting because obviously I um, published a book that was very dark um, set in a lunatic asylum in the 40s and it was a strange time to to say to people you know why don't you read my book that's incredibly upsetting um about how they treated people in the 40s in a mental asylum um because actually I could understand when they were like do you know what Cheska I really just want to read Jilly Cooper I'd be like fair enough <laughs> you do you babe <laughs> um yeah it's um I think you do you definitely have to listen to that voice and yeah make sure that your books are a comfort and not making you more stressed and more depressed um but then some people you know they love thrillers and I think thriller sales this year have gone up because I think strangely people maybe the other way they conversely want to know kind of what's the worst that could happen and you yeah. know it's not this bad at that's, least no one's stalking me and <laughs> so, that <laughs> makes nice. so much sense to want to come out of your book and think oh I'm glad that that's reminding me that you know this reality is <laughs> relatively not as terrible yeah <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why it is that, um, you know, so many people read such dark stuff um, and particularly women as well. Mm. Um, as someone said, it is because their women are always 
they're always you know worried about their own vulnerability and you know it's the old walking back from the train late at night and my husband wouldn't think about his own safety mm. he would just walk back from the station in our little village um, and walk home whereas I'd get the keys out and look around me and make sure that I knew where I'd run to if someone came along and you know I think that's why women are sort of obsessed with serial killers and thrillers and death and being vulnerable they're sort of always worrying about what's the worst thing that could happen. This year for the first time I read We Have Always Lived in the Castle and I was really it's not the idea of you know, psychological horror is hardly a new one, and that book was written a while ago, but that the menace of how much of you know what was happening, it wasn't just you know the gore, it was the the way they were tormented by everyone living in the village, and just that, that the way that you know America is kind of a monster, but her life is sort of governed by a very real fear, and I think that we you know all felt self conscious to some degree, and that's just the the turning up of it it's definitely like you said frightening and I think a lot of it is we all have our own sort of worst fears and I think as a writer you don't necessarily need to write something really scary but what you do perhaps need to do is yeah think about the reaction of your protagonist and and really explore sort of their internal reaction to something but you're right that that you know the creepy village or what is it the um haunting of hill house it's the same sort of idea isn't it and they don't they just don't go there they just don't go to the house and there is something so frightening about a place that you know everyone just stays away from and that sort of menacing uh, menacing idea that you you know you're sending your character to it yeah it's creepy <laughs> i think when you're you know younger readers before you've really seen anything horrible you don't really know how the world works in the same way you've got mm. room for all of that hyperbole and I think you've got enough you know natural barriers around it and it's only when you get a bit older that it all sort of starts to to bleed in yeah absolutely I think that's it. you're so sort of black and white as a child aren't you, you don't really understand you know the actual consequences of you know my four-year-old's constantly sort of you know coming up with horrible scenarios magic and talking about rugs, blood and death and lots of things and you're trying to explain to him like oh no that's not good darling you know you don't don't talk about things like that and um but you know he doesn't he doesn't really understand you know, what he's what he's saying basically <laughs> that it's really disturbing anyway little insight there into my four-year-old again <laughs> which books are you most excited about sharing with him and your other children when they're a little bit older yeah so I've enjoyed I mean obviously the board books are good and I've been introduced to I don't obviously have any memories of things like Peepo and Each Peach Pear Plum and all these things that I'm now obsessively reading the twins who are two but yeah Barnaby's just started on I just thought you know what he's ready for proper stories now um so he's four and a half and I I, I tested him out on the magic faraway tree. I thought, come on, let's have a see. Um, and he just he just has run with it. And so we've moved on now and we're now on the wishing chair collection. So I'm just going through loads of my favourite Enid Blyton. I think I'll then definitely move to a bit of Roald Dahl. Um, I'm just really excited. Yeah, I'm just excited about getting him to learn to read as well. Um, and then definitely asking Twitter children's community to just tell me, you know, all the best books for that age appropriate. So I really want him to learn to love to read because I just, you know, it's such a joy. I've got a very um, clear memory of being read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when I was really quite little, like maybe four or five. And, you know, it's such a, a complex story. You know, the darkness of it, not just Willy Wonka being mm -hmm. sort of terrifying, like, you know, charismatic <laughs> um, person with sort of creepy intentions, but also the poverty 
And I think of how, oh, you know, couldn't stop worrying about all of the grandparents sort of sharing the bed and not being warm enough in, in the cabbage soup. No, I think that's it. I think they definitely are right that there's a level, of course, and which is why I have to be a bit careful because uh, particularly with, with uh, Barnaby is quite imaginative and quite um, sensitive and you do think, gosh, things do scare them. You need to be careful that, yeah, I'm not going too, too far. So I often do stop in it if he's a bit scared and say, oh, you know, and obviously that's not real. <laughs> so, don't worry, darling. Um, but I, I think that's it, that he'll get what he can get from it. Um, and But the colour of it, and, you know, already, I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is such a great example because what kid doesn't want to just go to a place like that with all that sort of the sweets and the, just the treats and the magic and the oompa loompas. And, you know, that one, I just know how much, how enjoyable that will be to read to him. Um, so yeah, no, I'm loving, I'm loving the fact that he's on sort of real stories as it were, and that we can sort of invest in a story every night. You sort of build up and, you know, I sort of say to him, you know, remember last night what happened and, you know, where did the wishing chair go? And, and he, you know, and he remembers and he, he is really invested in it, which is really nice. It's just, it's just more fun than those endlessly repetitive, um, picture books. I mean, I love Julia Donaldson, but there is just, you know, there is a limit. <laughs> when you know of the how many heart. times I can keep reading <laughs> Snail and the Whale. Like um, <laughs> you know, they say that Netflix is sort of that bit more sophisticated because it's so much of traditional TV is based on like recapping and on last week's show. And as soon as you've got an engaged person in the audience who doesn't need to be reminded, he's just straight in. And that's what I suspect it's a little bit like that as, you know, watching children really grasp reading and books and getting excited about it. I think that's it. But I think it's it is that weird blurring of reality. And, you know, like the rug comment in the room, you know, I, I'm sure that was from, you know, Aladdin or whatever it is. You know, he's obviously taken it from somewhere. So that strange sort of he's not yet old enough to really understand, you know, that, that sadly the you know, magic doesn't exist. <laughs> um yeah it's sort of strange but um we'll see and of course I, I can't wait to read the Harry Potter books with him which just and and the Northern Lights trilogy you know those are the ones that I just I'm so excited to see someone read them for the first time but equally terrified that you know maybe he won't love it and I'll have to watch my own child reject Harry Potter and I'll be like no heartbreak I mean there's probably one child in the world but I'm sure it's not Barnaby let's hope not <laughs> What's the last book you read that really made you laugh? Oh gosh, without a doubt, um, Kirsty Greenwood's "He Will Be Mine." <laughs> um, I sort of still think I read I read it about three weeks ago, um, and uh, she, it's just come out, and it's it's just ridiculous um, about a girl in a northern town who basically gets obsessed with the idea that she's meant to be with this Hollywood film star um, and that he's her her true one. And she goes out on this ridiculous mission to LA. But there's a scene in it with, um, she turns out, she basically blags her way onto the film set. And she has this strange idea to, I think he has obviously done an interview about how much he loves, um, uh, I don't know, cheese. So she has all these different cheeses and she has a little butter knife and she has all this stuff ready to make him this sort of delightful treat in his trailer. And she turns up and basically Nicholas Cage bumps into her. So she panics in front of Nicholas Cage he thinks that she's there with this knife falls out. He thinks that she's got a chicken and that she's about to sacrifice. It just gets completely <laughs> barking. And I was just really, really cry laughing. Just, just, it was just wonderful. So yeah, that one really, really tickled me. Um, I was just in the mood, just in the mood for real sort of proper unashamed, feel good, 
ridiculousness was that sounds yeah, like an ideal. enormous amount of fun i read um man of my dreams <laughs> yeah. by curtis sittenfeld earlier this year which is also really funny and you know warm and wise and believable but it's about that level of romantic obsession and it sounds like they'd be a, a good good things to begin and end the year on yeah i think i think that was it it was just you know she she does lean into the madness which i do enjoy um but yeah you've got to do it well and she does do it she does the emotion well as as well so no it was really it's it's well worth it yeah i mean i think all the time about sophie kinsella and how much i love her and what comic masterpieces those books are and the way it's that she will push and twist a joke and sort of say you can't you know the original premise is there but it's just taking something in such an unexpected direction and doing it with such boldness and commitment yeah I think that's it no it's it, it, and it's quite unusual to you know laughing out loud I always think is is the hardest thing to do you know write um funny books as well and I always it's easy to make people cry I think or easier to make people cry than it is to really make someone laugh it's hard you know and particularly it's subjective again it comes back to you know people's sense of humor but oh, when people get it right it's just wonderful yeah I just saw a really great passage from Love Nina that I'd forgotten about where um, her young charges are talking about um, if people laugh out loud when they read, it's because they hope people will hear them and see how amused they are and it's just showing off and nobody really does it and means it. But I think I do laugh out loud at quite a lot of things. I definitely, yeah, I suppose la yeah, laughing out loud, it is hard. I mean, to really chuckle, to really lose it is, is amazing. But yeah, I've got that. I mean, I love that book. That is, that is a, that's another one that is a sort of easy present for people I find because you just think well you know how can you not be amused by um love Nina I just I think it's and it's so lovely and warm I love letters because it's it's the opposite of the wolf hall feeling isn't it when you think oh god there's so much book and you can think well I can just read a letter and that's yes. just a page and I feel like I've engaged with the cultural world without too much outlay but it normally is the letter books that are so addictive that suddenly you're like, oh, I, I got to the end. Yeah, absolutely. No, they are. They're in, yeah, eminently readable. Yeah, she's great. She is. I'd buy anything she writes, as it were. She's she's someone who really does make me laugh out loud. Yeah. I think her observations. Oh, anyway, I need to reread her. Maybe I'll return to her. That's actually quite a good shout. Oh, that'd be a lovely. I need a new. I need a new. And I was going to reread all Natasha Solomon's as well. She's oh, um. Tell she me about Natasha Mr. Solomon. I don't know her. Do you not? Oh, she wrote um, Mr. Rosenblum's List, um, which was a wonderful book about um, a, a man who appeared on our shores um, in Britain in World War II from, I think, I want to say he's Polish, but I'm not sure he is Polish. I think it's because I'm a bit Polish that I want him to be. Um, but he's from Eastern Europe and he turns up and he basically wants to be British. And he ends up trying to build a a golf course um, and wants to drive a specific car and he ends up, it, it actually reminded me um, a bit of Aisha Malik's brilliant um, Green and Pleasant Land. Oh, I this love idea that the, the, Yeah, which is just, uh, it was such a gorgeous, but, but such a brilliant premise of this man promising to build a mosque in an English village. It had that sort of tone of someone desperate to fit in and or to, in you know, Aisha's case to sort of do right by by his sort of mother and his culture. But um, yeah, Natasha Solomon, she's just very funny. She wrote, uh, wrote another one called The Novel in the Viola. Um, and another one called The Gallery of Vanished Husbands and The Song Collector. And she's just got this wonderful, gentle humour, but uh, she just can she can just do humour uh, really well. Huge thanks to Jessica. The Other Girl is out now. It's an addictive, eerie, chilling, compelling read, perfect for a winter night. 
Or if you're a wuss like me and you want something cosier, I'd strongly recommend Curling Up with the Gin O'Clock Club by her alter ego, Rosie Blake. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast. Find a list of all the books Jessica mentioned on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Mickey Spillane on his famous literary PI, Mike Hammer. Mike Hammer drinks beer because I can't spell cognac. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.